0: Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim In the name of Allah, most gracious, most merciful. Al-Jum'ah Magazine, your guide to an Islamic life. Volume 24, Issue 3, Rabi' al-Awwal 1433 Hijri. A Quranic voice bridging the gap between mankind and nature. By Maryam Halim. take a look around you oil pours into the ocean sealing destruction on the animals the plants the water by the second nuclear waste decimates entire regions creating refugees and corpses out of its inhabitants human beast bird and fish making the earth unfit to grow the air unfit to breathe, the water unfit to drink. The richness of the rainforest is a plundered, destroying life by the heartbeat. Yeah. And those majesties we call mountains are blown up and cut down without a thought to the wise and stabilizing forces being annihilated. Yeah. Take another look. Wealth upon wealth is invested to create technology that will help better kill the unfortunate of mankind. Great edifices are built to lock away men, women and children. The most carefully formulated psychological methods are employed to torture and humiliate people. Money is made of sickness. It is more lucrative to bar individuals from treatment than to heal them. Look again if you can. A meat industry thrives on the maltreatment of its cattle and livestock for profit from birth to death. Of chickens, beaks and legs take up too much space. Of cattle, grain, a diet of sugar which wrecks havoc on their stomachs, is cheaper to feed than the grass their stomachs can properly digest. They are pumped with hormones to make them grow abnormally large and fast then because of their sickly nature they are pumped again with antibiotics so much for domesticated animals we give little thought we give little thought to the animals of the wild who have no more wild to live in the vastness of the devastation is innumerable but its source is one and the same us mankind these thoughts cascading through my heart. I ask myself, where the angels are at? Now behold, your Lord said to the angels, I am placing upon the earth a human successor to steward it. They said, will you place thereupon one who will spread corruption therein, and who moreover will shed blood while we ever exalt you with all praise and hallow you?" He said, Indeed, I know what you do not know, Surat Al-Baqarah, chapter 2, verse 30. They must have known something about our clay nature to question at the celestial assembly why Allah should place mankind on earth as its principle, a creation with so tangible a tendency to violence and arrogance. But before I betray myself as a misanthropic i will say now that in these verses allah himself comes to our defense thus he taught adam the names of created beings all of them thereafter he arrayed them before the angels then he said tell me the names of these if you are truthful in saying that man is undeserving undeserving of the stewardship Surah al-Baqarah. Uh, chapter 2, verse 30. Thus Allah proves our promise through a demonstration of our ability to learn the proper names of things, not to name which the Algerian-born French philosopher uh, Jacques Jacques Derrida criticizes in the animal that therefore I am, but merely our ability to discern the true names that is nature of things that is to say this notion of naming in these verses points to mankind's ability to learn the proper ways of our world the real characteristics of our fellow creatures this naming constitutes our ability to overcome our self-centeredness and inclination to dominate through an understanding of the life around us it is this gift of being able to know the names Again, not ourselves naming, but learning the names of others. That is our saving grace. It is this ability to know the name, the God-given nature of things for which Allah placed us as stewards of the earth. Not dominators, not lords, but caretakers, maintainers of created harmony. This is what a steward is. One who takes the time and has the humility to listen to the other in his myths learned or learn from it, respond to it. It is this trait, however, hidden in our violent times, that we must now strive to surface, strive to express and implement. In looking deeper at the angel's critique, I hope to issue a critique of humanism, the current reigning ideology of mankind's position and relation to the rest of the world. My contention is that, in our modern age, the humanistic worldview has led to the same psycho-spiritual disease that other ideologies have been responsible for unleashing in man and other ages the very fear the angels had regarding our race the fear of our bloodthirsty and corrupting hands i hope to further dissect the problem of humanism using mary shelley's poignant mary shelley's poignant little novel uh, frankenstein After laying down clearly, I hope the problems of humanism, specifically in its impact on the natural and human world, I hope to look more closely at the Quran's alternative view of the place of humanity in the world, along with an in-depth discussion of how it looks at what we have come to call the natural world or nature, which I will keep in quotes throughout as I think it a problematic and inaccurate view of these other beings. One, An introductory glance at humanism. Before critiquing humanism, it would be helpful to begin with a brief description of it and its history. (coughs) There is question as to when humanism first became an idea to be mentioned. Indeed, it may be looked at as a mindset that has influenced peoples and thinkers of varied places throughout the ages, or at least this is what Europeans of the last two centuries, like Martin, Heidegger, in his letter on humanism argued. I think dating its systematic intellectual and cultural propagation to 15th century Europe is most accurate. The Renaissance, the scientific revolution, and the Enlightenment were periods of tremendous political and intellectual uh, shifting that took place in and around the 15th century. During this time, the church reliance on faith and feudal hierarchy all lost ground. The importance of man, his ability to reason, his ability to control and manipulate, learn and discover all surface in this era, (coughs) and took reign of European society, its thought and social setup. Humanism was its birth child. Humanism, in a nutshell, is a belief system that upholds mankind something unique, something apart from the rest of the world, Not only is mankind placed apart, it is placed above and extremely important with the ability to manipulate and control the rest of the world. Humanism rests on the belief that man, unlike the rest of the world, has no nature, has no fixed element, but rather can become whatever it wants to become through use and manipulation of the world around him. Uh, A central part of man's ability to control and manipulate is technology. With rudimentary tools or high tech lasers. The 15th century Italian philosopher Giovanni Pico della Mirandola, in his speech on the dignity of man, sums up best what it is humanism stands for, or what humanism stands for. Man is the animal that is the most happy and is therefore worthy of all wonder, and that is capable of arousing envy not only in the brutes but also in the stars and even in minds beyond the world. How Mirandola is able to state this with such surety is beyond me. But that aside, here we have a perfect rendition of the privileged place of man within the humanistic tradition. We are enviable. We are enviable. Not only does humanism contend that man is privileged and envied by the whole of the universe, but he is even needed by God brandola describes how the artisan created the world but desired that there be someone to reckon up the reason of such a big work of such a big work such is the weight the uh, unimpeachable importance of man such is the source of the humanistic view of mankind's supposed self-sufficiency and uniqueness of power and ability as if this is not enough of an honor Mirandola goes on to describe God's gift of naturalness or naturelessness to mankind. Addressing Adam, he states, Thou art confined by no bounds, and thou wilt fix limits of nature for thyself. I have placed thee at the center of the world. He then informs him that man can either descend and become like a brute, or rise and become divine. All is within the ability of mankind. I would like to note here that my problem with the humanistic thought is not that it distinguishes mankind per se. I think it would be folly to try and deny that there is something different about mankind. One only need to look at our ability to destroy as a proof of this, nor do I take issue with the fact that man can be great and just or demeaning and unjust. We have too many examples of such a range of mankind's abilities to deny this rather what is problematic and extremely so is that humanism views mankind is that humanism views mankind as wholly different natureless in the face of nature most important most prominent utterly unconnected with the rest of the world here is the central problem of humanism and it is a fatal one in a claiming we have no nature no limit we create room for ourselves to consistently transgress those limits, to the detriment of ourselves as well as our fellow creatures. In holding that we are at the center of the universe, and the envy of it, we give ourselves rein to cut down anything in our greedy path of extravagant consumption. In a proclaiming that we are utterly unique among the rest of the worlds, we blind and deafen ourselves to the need to the needs of our surroundings. It is nothing more than a deplor- deplorable de- excuse to allow our arrogance to run wild. It is this devastation that Mary Shelley strives to uncover in her novel Frankenstein. Part 2. Look in the humanist mirror and meet Frankenstein. Frankenstein is a fine critique of the humanistic worldview in which man dominates all in which the world and its latent discoveries are there for man to plunder and lord over. It is a brilliant warning, herald, it's a brilliant warning, herald of the harm this uh, this uh, ideology wrecks on the world, on our very existence through the aid of technology and scientific discovery. Frankenstein, uh, contrary to popular conception, is the name of the creator, Victor Frankenstein, not the creature. He creates the creature he creates is nameless. Frankenstein refers to him to him throughout the book as the monster or demon. The humanist outlook. As I stated earlier, the humanist outlook took full root in Europe during the Enlightenment period. It is no coincidence that Shelley places her novel during this period. The protagonist of the novel Frankenstein is a brilliant man of his time imbued with the values of a humanism imbued, as Frankenstein himself admits, with high hopes and lofty, and a lofty ambition. Ambition itself is not necessarily a humanistic trait. However, the ambition to divine the physical secrets of the world categorically falls within a humanistic worldview. However, the ambition to divine the physical secrets of the world categorically falls within a humanistic worldview. The language here is important in understanding the viewpoint of humanism that Frankenstein even believes he is capable of divining knowledge places him categorically above what it is that he is divining. That is to say his acquaintance with the physical world is not one of mutual gain and loss. It is not one of connection or even contemplation, but of seeing through the surface and becoming absolute owner of the true knowledge of it. To be human in this context is to be good over nature. I will pioneer a new way, says Frankenstein. I will pioneer a new way, says Frankenstein. Explore unknown powers and unfold the world's deepest mysteries of creation. One can almost hear the word the word revealed in such a declaration. It is not necessarily that humanism offers up the role of Allah to mankind, but that the position that it gives mankind over nature is that of a God-complete worship. Shelley describes the arrogant suppositions of humanism through appropriately the lecture of one of Frankenstein's chemistry professors, the lecture of one of Frankenstein's chemistry professors, a professor who who unbeknownst to him, A professor who, uh, unbeknownst to him, inspires Frankenstein to create life. In discussing the greatness of modern scientists, he states they penetrate into the recesses of nature, they penetrate into the recesses of nature and show how she works in her hiding places. Here, once again, we see the instance, the insistence on the ability of mankind to figure out all of nature and utterly objectified her in this case in which nature is only looked upon as a utility for mankind. Just as significant, we see in this quote, the highly sexualized mode of looking at nature. Nature is a female uh, body to be penetrated by men. This not only reemphasizes the pure use value of nature and its objectification, it also adds an erotic mystification, a carnal desire to spare on this very male-centered, on this very male-centered aggressive race to dominate and discover, to take ownership and parade. Manhood is thus claimed for those who go out in the world and thunder. The professor goes on saying these scientists have acquired new and almost unlimited powers. They can command the thunders of heaven, mimic the earthquake, and even mark the invisible world with its own shadows. This quote is of vital importance to humanistic outlook. Man has unlimited powers. He can command nature, control it. He can rise up to its power and mimic it. There is nothing man cannot do. Nothing man cannot know. Nature is a voiceless, rightless, colonized entity. Nature is a voiceless, rightless, colonized entity. His last description I find chilling in how perfect It embodies the arrogance of such a world view, that man may mock this world, not only control it, have power like it and over it, but aggressively belittle it, taunting it to respond to our crimes. And then we wonder why natural disasters are on the increase. We wonder and speculate, but never think that nature might just be responding to our mocking taunts. The Critique Through the voice of her tragic main character, Frankenstein surely delivers an unequivocal rejection of these fundamental beliefs of the humanism. Frankenstein's humanistic endeavors end up destroying all his loved ones any any hope of happiness in this any hope of happiness in his life and wreck havoc on his peace of mind leading to his eventual uh, demise. As Frankenstein lay ill and dying aboard and aboard an exploration ship, the captain, perhaps a mirror of the Anger, Inexperienced Frankenstein tells him that one man's life or death were but a small price to pay for the acquirement of the knowledge which I sought for the dominion uh, I should acquire and transmit over the elemental foes of our race. Emphasis added. <coughs> Once again we see here we see here the humanistic value of ambition for dominion over nature. But instead of celebrating an in agreement, but instead of celebrating an agreement, the now tried, the now tried Frankenstein recoils from such devastating sentiment, exc- exclaiming, "Unhappy man! Do you share my madness? Have you drank also of the in, in, or have you drank also of the intoxicating draught? Hear me! Let me reveal my tale, and you will dash the cup from your lips. This intoxicating draught which Shelley is condemning, uh, condemning, condemning." is the humanistic drought of the enlightenment. It is in this context that Frankenstein tells the story of the monster he creates as a warning to the young captain and by extension Shelley's warning to her readers. A vital way in which Shelley condemns the humanistic pursuit is through its conception of knowledge. Specifically, she criticizes the notion that knowledge specifically or especially scientific technological knowledge has no limits. Shelley uh, through her character's creation of the monster, shows what uh, monstrosities, monostro uh, show shows what may be created if we uphold such uh, a belief. Knowledge must have a limit. Human beings must approach the natural world with caution, for the very reason that we cannot control it. Learn from it. Frankenstein tells his companion, "If not by my precepts." at least by my example, how dangerous is the acquirement of knowledge and how much happier that man is who believes his native town to be the world than he who aspires to become greater than his nature. Here, uh, Shelley crushes the humanistic belief that man has no nature, that his nature is what he sets out to make it. On the contrary, man has a nature, and if he transgresses it, he will be destroyed in the end, like Frankenstein is. Not only will he be destroyed, but first his knowledge will uh, create a path of destruction unforeseeable and uncontainable. Irrevocable harm, unforeseeable consequences. This is perhaps the most poignant ethical condemnation of the humanism in Shiri's novel. Frankenstein blinded by uh, the arrogant presumption that he could not only control the natural world, but also his creation, or invention, if we would like to, as I would make an analogy between the monster and technology in general. It never once occurs to Frankenstein that he will not be able to control the consequences of what his hands have put forth. Here Shelley delivers quite a prophetic message at the cusp of the Industrial Revolution. Her keen eye seeing clearly the trajectory of this zeal to blind sorry, this zeal, to build, to create, to control. Here, uh, Keen, I see clearly the trajectory of this zeal to build, to control, sorry, to create, to control, that our path of discovery and exploration will lead less to progress and more to destruction if we do not proceed with care and contemplation on the consequences of our actions. Frankenstein comes to this realization, but far too late, but far too late. Only after witnessing the decimation of life around him, does he in desperation understand his mistake and exclaim in hopeless anguish, I ardently wished to extinguish that life which I had so thoughtlessly bestowed. Most scientists within the war technology industry do not have Frankenstein's level of uh, conscientiousness, however late in coming. But if they had, we would hear them echo for eternity the words of Shelley's character I felt I had committed some great crime, had created a fiend whose unparalleled barbarity, whose unparalleled barbarity, had desolated my heart. If only they had hearts to desolate. In a drawing an analogy between the monster and technology, we see the profound ethical implications. It becomes a fascinating view into the life that technology takes on its own takes on its own, which is, I might add, not science fiction at all, but oh, so very real. I was the slave of my teacher, Lemons Frankenstein. The Monaster dictates Frankenstein's actions, the way in which he must conduct his relationships, the trajectory of his life plans. It is not because the monster has the power to force Frankenstein to do anything. Frankenstein still has his freedom. However, the presence of the monster his ability to act in ways that Frankenstein never imagined, his autonomy of spirit irrevocably impacts Frankenstein's life and the lives of those in his circle, for the world, for the worse. Like I said, this is not a far-fetched reality, but actually quite immediate. The technologies we create take on a life of their own, the impact of which is widespread and cannot be stopped. We cannot control our creations of technology or even worse, what they will be used for, What they will become knowing this full well and knowing the violent world in which we live in we must proceed with weighted consciences contemplating with gravity what we will unleash upon the world in a state we see caught up in a reckless frenzy we see caught up in a reckless frenzy and this will not change until we develop a sense of responsibility and accountability in the end we do become slaves to our technological inventions whether it be uh, through our compulsion to use them Or our unwilling submission to them, nuclear disasters enslave all their victims, dictating to them how they must know, how they must now live their lives, and the consequences if they do not. One can almost hear the echo of the monster in these technological disasters Slave, you are my creator, but I am your master. Okay? Obey. Sorry. Slave, you are my creator, but I am your master. Obey. Slave, you are my creator, but I am your master. Obey. And obey we must. It is vital to not hear that the monster was not born bad. He was not born with violence as his goal, the decimation of mankind as his purpose. He was born a clean slate, if you will. Frankenstein could have put whatever whatever he so wished to into whatever uh, he so wished to into the monastery's psyche. But Frankenstein, out of horror, abandons him. The monster is left to wander ignorantly and aimlessly. Each time he meets with human beings, he is viciously repulsed. The monster wants to be accepted by mankind into mankind. The monster wants to be accepted by mankind into mankind. He wants to be part of our ethical and moral system. He upholds it. It is only after he repeatedly meets with painful rebuke that he, in outraged pain and sorrow, vows eternal hatred and vengeance to all mankind in his words the monastery called this moment i was like a wild beast that had broken the toils, destroying the objects that obstructed me from that moment i declared everlasting war against the species and more than all against him who had formed me and sent me forth to this insupportable insupportable misery I find it fascinating that this creation of mankind is given intellect and speech. If we turn to our analogy of technology, this adds an even more condemning twist to our humanistic approach to the world and the technology. It is not that we create evil technology per se, even though the intentions behind many of these creations are in fact quite evil. Rather, it is what we put into them that makes them so destructive. It is how we react to them, if you will, how we interact with them that makes them so harmful. We cannot blame technology for the world's catastrophes. We can we can only blame the makers of technology, like the monster. If we put into it the care and concern for the world, including ourselves, we would never be in the mess we are in. And so, technology may claim, as the monster does at the end of the book, "Am I to be thought the only criminal when all humankind sinned against me?" Likewise, the argument that the messed up state of the world was somehow a sacrifice for progress, for wealth and ease, completely falls through. Likewise the argument that the messed up state of the world was somehow a sacrifice for progress, for wealth and ease, completely falls through. Had we started with the right uh, premises, we would have been sure to create and invent in a holistic ethical manner. Had we put into our technologies the care and concern for ourselves and our world for the present and the future. For those we understand and those we do not, had we done this, we would now be living in a world of prosperity for all, including the communities of the natural world. We would all be flourishing in harmony and not sagging under the weight of our insatiable, maddening desires. Schillies, Frankenstein, read in this way, is a truly, or written this way, is truly, is a truly revolutionary piece of work. We could have had just as advanced a world more so, but our arrogant, narrow-minded premises led us astray and led us to the desolation of our hearts. The Nature Connection. I have thus far issued Shelley's negative argument against humanism. Frankenstein, however, is not merely condemnatory. The novel holds in it a positive message as well, a calling to another way of conducting oneself in the world, a way that calls on mankind not to objectify and dominate nature, but to embrace it march in tune with its rhythm. (coughs) While her character Frankenstein is caught up in the humanist dream of dominating and creating, he is utterly cut off from the natural world. Uh, He neither notices it nor does it impact him at all. Only after he completes his work and the enormity of what he has created has dawned on him does he begin to notice nature again. Only as he attempts to remove himself from his previous actions and outlook does he turn to the natural well, these sublime and significant scenes offered me the greatest consolation that I was capable. I was capable of receiving. They elevated me from all the littleness of feeling. The sight of the awful and majestic in nature had indeed always the effect of solemnizing, uh, solemnizing my, solemnizing my mind, and causing me to forget the passing cares of life. Shelley uses Frankenstein's best friend as a model of what she thinks is a more balanced human being someone to uh, revere and follow but even human sympathies were not sufficient to satisfy his eager mind but even human sympathies were not sufficient to satisfy his eager mind frankenstein says of his friend "The seek the scenery the scenery of external nature which others regard only with admiration he loved with ardor Shelley hits on something vital here and something vitally missing from the humanistic outlook It is not enough just to admire the natural world. It ought to be raised to a more intimate level, a more equal relationship with human beings. We ought to love nature as we love our fellow human beings. Frank Stein gains strength from both his friend as well as nature. They too, the friend and nature, are coupled paralleled. A selfish pursuit had crammed and not with me. A selfish pursuit had crammed and not with me. Until your gentleness and affection, says Frankenstein of his friend, warmed and opened my senses. He goes on to say in the same breath, a serene sky and verdant fields filled me with ecstasy. The present season was indeed divine. The more exposure Frankenstein has to the natural world, the more he becomes repulsed by the humanistic outlook that mankind is somehow above the rest of the world. That we have characteristic that place us in an envied position. As he wanders through the mountains agonizing over the monstrosity, monstrosity he has created, he laments alas. Why does man boast of sens- uh, sensibilities, of sensibilities superior to those apparent in the brute? It only renders them more necessary beings. If our impulses were confined to hunger, thirst and desire, we might be nearly free. Here, Shelley, uh, through uh, Frankenstein, now articulates a thought in complete arts with the humanistic view of mankind. She not only doubts mankind's special status of superiority over nature, but also whether our supposedly unique characteristics actually help us, actually place us above the rest of the world. Our unique traits she seems to be voicing have hurt us. Have pulled us down more than they have raised us up, making us more, making us more necessary beings, more dependent and helpless. The truth of her statement reverberates around our myriad current crises, human and environmental. The mono, the monos, the monstrosity of mankind. The monstrosity of mankind. Frankenstein created a monster. This is what the novel tells us. But I think we may safely peel away more layers of meaning. First, as I stated earlier, the monster was not born a monster. He became so because of how human beings interact with him. Second, the monster may be looked at as a reflection of mankind itself. Indeed, it is through the eyes of the monster that we see Shelley's sharpest criticism of mankind and its humanistic outlook on the world. The monster's soul delight in the early months of his creation was nature, his sole comfort and company. My chief delights were the sight of the flowers, the birds, and all the gay apparel of summer. On the other hand, the human beings he observes are completely wrapped up in their own world, untouched by the natural world in a bubble of self sufficiency, which we know is untenable in the long run. They the human beings love and sympathize with one another and their joys, depending on each other, were not interrupted by the casualties of winter on the world outside that took place around them. Not only is man cut off from the cycles of the natural world, but he possesses a fearsome viciousness. As a freakish-looking outcast, the different one, the other, the monster is shunned and attacked everywhere he goes. Finally, he hides away in a hovel. Here then I retreated, and lay down happy to have found the shelter however miserable from the inclemency from the inclemency from the inclemency of the season and still more from the barbarity of man the monster not only picks this up from his own experience but also from the accounts of men uh, themselves Men's, uh, men says the monster after reading some histories of the human race from books he found appear to me as monsters thirsting for each other's blood. And yet, it was not all horror and violence. Men he witnessed with his own eyes and from the books he read were capable of great goodness. It was a conundrum he found hard to reconcile. These wonderful narrations inspired me with strange feelings. Was man indeed at once so powerful, so virtuous and magnificent, yet so vicious and base? Thus we see, nor can we get away from the fact that human beings, unlike other creations, have the capability to move from one end of the behavioral spectrum to the other. The humanistic worldview translates this ability as man not having a nature, not having an essence, being in a way limitless. Shelley disagrees with this conclusion. Man has a nature and therefore limits as to what will keep him intact. But man can transgress those bounds and destroy himself and the world around him. The humanistic worldview allows for this continual transgression of man's nature, which leads to a transgression of all nature, man included. Frankenstein comes to the conclusion that ambition and passion in the pursuit of knowledge is at the core of uh, our flow and must be reigned in and limited. A human being in perfection ought a human being. In perfection ought. <coughs> A human being in perfection ought always to preserve a calm and peaceful mind, and never to allow passion or a transitory desire to disturb his tranquility. (coughs) I do not think the pursuit of knowledge is an exception to this rule. In other words, what man's nature demands and seeks is peace. Though Shelley doesn't recognize this, as far as we can tell, this is one of the meanings and names of al-Islam. Part (coughs) 3. The Quran Voice. Or... The Quranic voice. Shilly's moral voice Shilly's moral voice is sorely needed in our time. We have pushed ourselves to the brink of total collapse. While Shili's <coughs> criticism is profoundly accurate, the romantic sensibility is not enough of a moral code, an ethical voice to create real substantial change nor does it present people with a world view that comprehensively incorporates the natural world in direct relation with mankind that is to say why that is to say why shilly's romantic world view allows for her to promote the natural world as an essential part of the experience of a balanced mankind the natural world is still just that an amorphous conglomerate of mysterious healing power the natural world is not differentiated not uh, personalized the natural world is not differentiated uh, not personalized, not uh, he here. The natural world is not differentiated, not personalized, not heard. This was Beredia's uh, problem with our perception of animals, and his the animal that therefore I am. While far more positive and necessary, the natural world is still very much viewed in terms of what benefits man, how it benefits man, how we need it. This is an important point that I do not mean to undermine, However, it cannot be the only point for it to be the effective radical change that we need. Not only do we need to fundamentally reinterpret what we mean by the natural world, but we also need to substantially interpret what mankind's position is in relation to the natural world, as well as mankind's position in relation to the universe and time. Galileo may have uncentered the earth for uh, Western man, but in our hearts and minds, mankind is still very much the honor, the center of all that is and all that will be. This is what needs displacing. And this is precisely what the Quranic narrative does. Mankind uncentered. Has it ever occurred to man that there were eons in the course of time when he was nothing even to be mentioned? Has it ever occurred to man that there were eons in the course of time when he was nothing even to be mentioned. The Quran 76th Sura opens with this disquieting, even startling verse. It is meant to unsettle. It is meant to jolt us up out of our self-aggrandizing perceptions of ourselves and our importance in the world. That the verse is in question format increases the sharp rhetorical tone of the meaning. Has it ever occurred to us? Has it ever entered our besotted narcissistic consciences, besotted narcissistic consciences that we may not be as ulcer and enviable to borrow Mirandola's word, as we think we are? Have we ever posed in our incessant self-focus to ponder how very small and insignificant we might actually be in the whole scheme of creation? The verse tells us with its slap in the face, frankness, the verse tells us with its slap in the face, frankness, that not only are we not as special as we would like to think ourselves, but we are far less than ever that, that. but we are far less than even that. We were absolutely nothing for time out of mind. Uh, we were absolutely nothing for time out of mind. Not even a thing to be mentioned, let alone desired or needed not even a thing to be mentioned. It echoes off the heart in unsubtle disjunctive beats. There were universes of time where we were unthought of and unsought after. This shift in mindset regarding the place and importance of mankind is vital for any lift away from the humanistic outlook. That is to say, the humanistic outlook has uh, presupposed the centeredness of man in relation to the rest of the world. Man is what is important. What is singularly different, unique, is man, but to the detriment of the world. This verse with pointed uh, curtness, unequivocally silences any such claim. The surah then goes on to uh, re-situate man. Man is a creation of Allah. Ah, there is that reference word creation, not the orphan nature. Like the rest of the created words, indeed, it is we alone who have created man from it sperm drop of mingled fluid to try him in life. Thus did we make uh, him a being endowed with hearing and seeing. Surah Al-Insan 76 too. It is this endowment of these senses along with the sense of the discerning heart, the organ of moral and ethical thought mentioned in several verses and always linked with the senses of hearing and seeing that gives the existence of man an additional burden, a moral one. We were created not because Allah needed or wanted us uh, to appreciate this created world, but to be tried. And to what end? I have created neither jinn nor a human being safe to worship me alone. Surah al-Dariyat 51-56 Thus, our existence is one of being held to account for how we interact in our world. Indeed, it is we alone who have shown him the way to be either thankful or ungrateful. Surah al-Insan 76, two. The Quran consistently reiterates its stance that mankind is not the be-all and end-all of creation. It does this both indirectly through discussing the wonders and magnificence of creation, and also headlong addressing mankind itself, putting it directly in its place. Thus, the Quran asks, are you human beings a more prodigious creation, or is the sky? He alone built it. Surah uh, Al-Nazi'at 79-27. The subsequent verses go on describing the magnitude of the creation of the heavens and the earth, the mountains and the waters, the night and the daylight. At the end of the uh, description, it states all as enjoyment for you and for your cattle for a time. Surat al-Nazi'at 79.33 At first glance, this verse may seem to be a humanistic talking point. There are critical differences. However, first, enjoyment is not exclusively for human beings. It introduces a holistic enjoyment of the world in which each element of creation has its place of prosperity and gratification, human, animal, and plant, and others. This enjoyment must be taken in harmony with the prodigious creation of the world. Second, the Arabic word for enjoyment here, mut'ah, is a timbered notion of enjoyment. It implies necessity for life. This may be contrasted with the Arabic word lahw, uh, which is criticized repeatedly in the Quran as a frivolous, mindless enjoyment of the world. Of the world. Third, the notion of elements of creation placed as enjoyment is tempered again by, one, the knowledge that this life is a test and accountability, right down, and accountability right down to the atomic level will take place, hence a reminder of for a time. And two, the way in which we are to view the rest of creation to be discussed shortly makes our interaction with it and what it gives up to us, uh, one of the humility, gratitude and caution. The harmony of creation may be seen again in the following two verses. Have you not seen the Prophet that is Allah alone who sends down? Have you not seen, O Prophet, that it is Allah alone who have you not seen, O Prophet, that it is Allah alone who sends down from the sky water whereby we bring forth fruits of varying colours, and also in the land mass of some mountains there are streaks white and red varying in their colours as well as others intensely black, intensely black, and so too among humankind and all birds and wild beasts and all cattle there are varying colours as well. Surat Surat Fatal Fata, thirty five verses twenty seven and twenty eight. Not only do these verses express harmony, they emphasize the similarities in our creations across the board, reminding us that our superficial differences are what bind us together. They are what mark us as part of a pattern of the universe, the burden of will. This brings us to the second layer of the Quran's development of a relationship between mankind and the natural world, more accurately described as fellow creations. Here I will finally intervene to tell you why I have so relentlessly put the word nature in quotation marks. Nature is the humanistic way of separating all that is around us sky earth and water and all that flies through it lives on it swims in it or burrows beneath it or burrows beneath it from its singular source Allah its soul creator and master maker nature suggests to our minds that the material earth we move through from which all in our word has been created and to which all is returned and from which all human beings shall be brought forth yet another time for Divine Judgment. (coughs) Nature suggests to our minds that the material earth we move through, from which all in our world has been created, (coughs) and into which all is returned, and from which all human beings shall be brought forth yet another time for Divine Judgment, is a mere background spontaneously generated, or always just there, or ancient and everlasting, without relevant antecedent or successor, in short worthy of little. Reflection. Not so says the Qur'an, calling these creations and creation altogether ayat or signs the very same word used to designate the verses of the book revealed by Allah to man for guidance. the Qur'an. For the function of these creations and the functions of the verses of the Qur'an are the same, to point humankind to their and our lone creator, Allah. Each is a book of revelation from Allah to all human beings one is the work of Allah, the other the word of Allah, one is the open book of creation, the other the unfurled scroll of the creator, the unfurled scroll of the creator, creation is the text of the creator, creation is the text of the creator revealed as a constant and continuously unmistakable guiding sign for all of human beings. Quran is the context of the text of creation, revealing to man creation's tafsir, its explication, and something of the unseen that lies beyond it, and gives it true coherence and unmistakable meaning. The truth is these creations and the creature man. We are fellows. Thus the insidious purpose of the word nature is to severe it, and us from the most obvious and consequential Question in the world with a thousand and one variants, but one single, inimitable, eternal answer Who made this? Who owns this? Who sustains this? What being could possibly bring this about with such beauty, wonder, precision, power, mercy, might, will, and love? All this the world creation resolves the creator, the maker, the fashioner, the originator, the one Allah. Thus, the insidious purpose of the word nature is to severe it, and us from the most obvious and consequential question in the world with a thousand and one variants, but one single inimitable eternal answer. Who made this? Who owns this? Who sustains this? What being could possibly bring this about with such beauty, wonder, precision, power, mercy, might, will, and love? All this the word creation results. The creator, the maker, the fashioner, the originator, the one Allah. We have seen the uncenteredness of mankind in the face of the rest of creation, and the harmony and similarity between the two. To further this development, the Quran introduces another connection, it is a characteristic of the created world that lessens the uniqueness of mankind considerably. It also gives us the platform to enter into a relationship of understanding with our fellow creations. Allah, the Quran tells us, endows all the elements of creation with the characteristic of consciousness, both self consciousness and consciousness of the world around us, or of the world around one. In this way, human beings are no longer unique in our ability to contemplate, reflect, form communities, speak common languages. These are, in fact, traits Allah instills in every existing thing, even though we do not perhaps have the ability to understand or recognize it. Before I continue, however, I would like to mention briefly a characteristic that does distinguish mankind, although not exclusively for the creation of Jinn, have this as well. What distinguishes mankind and Jinn from the rest of creation is a free will, that is to say, it is the ability to transgress one's nature and limits ordained by Allah. The rest of the creations do not have this option of exceeding their limits how we got free will, volitional faith in the first place, however makes this characteristic not so exclusive as it may at first seem. Indeed, we did offer the thrust of volitional faith to the heavens and the earth and the mountains, but they refused to bear it and were fearful of it, yet the human being bore it but could not uphold it. Indeed, he was most unjust concerning his own trust and most ignorant of the outcome. Surah al 33, verse 72. Free will was not bestowed upon mankind as a gift or a special honor. It was offered to the rest of creation as well. And as the verse indicates, they were far smarter creation, creations feeling the tremendous responsibility of being able to, trans- to transgress. One's bounds. We, however, as is so characteristic of us, felt we could handle it and so took it on. It is also important to note that uh, the free will here is offered as a trust, a responsibility, a burden burden of accountability. It is this trust that characterizes our role as stewards of the earth, our burden as stewards of the earth more on this to come inshallah. But first a quick observation. This verse exponentially increases the ethical <coughs> burden mankind has in regard to the environment. The environment now understood from the Quranic perspective being our fellow creatures who chose to remain unburdened but free will because they feared the enormity of transgressing. It is sobering to think that we harm these creatures wiser than us. Without so much as a second thought, it is ob- sobering to think that we harm these creatures wiser than us. Without so much as a second thought, it is unnerving to realize how we so continuously and aggressively wrong these pious creatures, conscious communities. I mentioned earlier that all creations have consciousness, both of the self and ones of one's surroundings. This was displayed in the previously discussed verse on free will. I would like to further explore it because I think it is absolutely necessary in order to step away from our humanistic principles. To not have free will is by no means equal to a less rich life than ours. To not have free will is by no means equal to a less rich life than ours. On the contrary, our fellow creatures have lives just as dynamic as ours, for there is not a single beast treading on the earth, nor a bird flying with its two wings, but that they are communities like you, Surat Al-An'am, 638. Not only do they have communities as lively as ours, but they have their own rites of worship, which they carry out with perfection. Each one of them among Allah's creation has known its way of prayer and exaltation, Surat Al-Nur, 2441. This reality renders our transgressions against the rest of creation an even greater ethical crime when looked at in light of the fact that we are destroying the peace and prosperity of perfect wo- uh, worshipers of Allah. I have mentioned the likeness of our fellow creations to ourselves in terms of how we are created, how we form ourselves into communities, and how we have consciousness of who we are and what we are about, although perhaps it is a less complicated issue for those other than mankind, one could argue they get it, <coughs> while we are mired in confusion. But let's peer. But let's peer a bit deeper into the consciousness of these creatures. While these creatures populate communities, it is important to specify that they also have language. Thus, it was a miraculous gift from Allah to the Prophet Solomon that he was able to understand the language of animals. Surah an 27:16. This tramples the notion that we humans are unique because we have the ability to speak, we are not unique in this respect, rather we are in fact limited because we cannot understand the languages of our fellow creations. As an illustrative example, I would like to point to the wonderful story of Solomon and the ants discussed in Surah sort of entitled The Ants. As Solomon's army marches through a place, a group of ants lie ahead. One of the ants calls out to the rest, O ants, enter your dwellings, lest Suleiman and his host crush you while they do not perceive. Surat An-Naml 2718 Gifted with the ability to understand the language of the ant, Solomon hears the desperate call of the ant. He stops his army and laughs out loud in pure joy for such a tremendous gift, a gift that enabled him to hear the ants and prevent their destruction. Surat An-Naml 2719 It is interesting to note that the ants know who Solomon is. They are aware of us even though we are so unaware of them. One of the lessons of this story is that while we do not have Solomon's literal gift for understanding the speech of animals, we should stop and listen carefully to the world around us, because we are crushing them under the weight of our supposed self-importance, a moral imperative. So where does this all lead them? So where does this all lead them? In the light of this shift in the uniqueness and centeredness of man, and in bringing him in a closer relation to his full of creatures what action, what behavior does this inspire? All this is framed by the Quran's unequivocal call for justice, absolute and all-inclusive justice. O you who believe, be ever upright for the sake of Allah, bearing witness to truth with impartial uh, justice. Surah Al-Ma'idah 5.8. The verse goes on to describe what it means here by impartial. Therefore, let not this detestation Therefore, let not this detestation for some people induce you to be unfair. I cannot stress enough the importance of this verse. The Quran is noted for its realistic view of the world, specifically of human interactions and inclinations, rather its impatience uh, with utopian conceptions of what we potentially could be. Thus, it acknowledges that we will not love everyone. We will even detest people, rightly or rightly or wrongly. It is within this acknowledgement that we will not be kindly disposed to everyone, that this is an unrealistic goal, that the verse frames the Quranic notion of justice, despite our feelings rightly or wrongly, we must be just. What is unacceptable is allowing for our feelings to govern our duty of being just. The verse ends with this imperative, rather be fair, for to do so is indeed closer to the fear of Allah, therefore fear Allah, indeed Allah is all aware of all that you do, Thus, it equates religiosity, the fear of Allah, with being just among His creatures. The following verse continues in the same vein, heightening the standard of equity, heightening the standard of equity between people, as well as introducing our accountability before Allah as to how we treat our fellow people. O you who believe, be most upright in upholding justice, bearing true witness for the sake of Allah alone even if it is against your own selves or your parents or your nearest relatives, regardless of whether one party is rich and the other poor, for Allah is most regardful of what is good for them both, so do not follow him to prevent equity, so do not follow him to prevent equity, for if you distort testimony or turn away from the truth, then indeed ever is Allah all aware of all that you do. Surah An-Nisa 4 uh, verse 135 these verses have only addressed equity and justice among human beings. I stress these verses here because of my contention that there will never be environmental, that there will never be environmental ecological justice without justice among mankind. There will, be, there will never be environmental ecological justice without justice among mankind as well. They are linked. As we have already seen, the faith between the two mankind and its fellow creations is utterly connected and intimate. But the Quran does not just leave it to implied connections look at these verses that define the most dangerous of mankind now there is among humanity the like of one who whose words about the life of this world please you and he openly calls upon Allah to bear witness as to what is in his heart though truly he is most relentlessly contentious for when he turns away from you he strives in the land to spread corruption therein and to destroy tillage and lifestyle. And Allah does not love corruption. Surah Al-Baqarah, chapter 2, verses 204-205. Again, the connection is made between truly God-fearing behavior and justice, both with man and man with his fellow creations. The verses continue. Thus, when it is said to him, be truly God-fearing, arrogant pride carries him into yet more sin. Thus, sufficient for him is Hell and a most Woeful, of wo- woeful cradle it is. Surat al-Baqarah, two, two hundred and six. There is a vast amount of Hadith literature reports of either the saying or action of Prophet Muhammad on animal rights and others. But as I have not spoken much of animals here, I would like to to do so now for a short, uh, for a short while. While Peter Singer's book, Animal Liberation published in 1975 may have been revolutionary in the secular West. The Islamic stance concerning animals was revolutionary 1400 years earlier. I will give just a couple examples of the grave weight that humane treatment of animals has in the Quranic world view. A sound hadith reports that once the Prophet passed by an emaciated by an camel, an emaciated camel, he said, fear Allah in regards to these animals who cannot speak their will, if you ride them, treat them accordingly, i.e., by making them healthy and fit for it. And if you plan to eat them, treat them accordingly, i.e., by making them healthy and giving them comfort, even in their death. Another sound report that the Prophet ﷺ, uh, passed by an animal branded on its face. He said, has it not reached you that I have cursed the one who brands an animal's face or hits it on its face? in terms of punishment regarding the maltreatment of animals, the Prophet ﷺ relates, a woman entered the fire of hell because of a cat which she had tied, neither giving it food nor setting it free to eat from the vermin of the earth in another narration, a vision came to the Prophet ﷺ in a prayer, then suddenly I saw a woman and a cat was lacerating hair with its uh, with its clothes then suddenly I saw a woman and a cat was lacerating uh, hair with its Closed uh, on inquiring, it was said that the woman had imprisoned the cat till it died of starvation, and she neither fed it, no, no, nor she neither fed fit, fit it nor freed it so that it could feed itself. On the brighter side, there is reward in treating animals well. The Prophet said, "A man saw a dog eating mud from the severity of thirst, <coughs> so that man took a shoe and filled it with water and kept." on pouring the water for the doctor, it quenched its thirst. So Allah approved of his deed and made him to enter paradise. The Prophet also stated, he who takes pity even on a sparrow and spares its life, Allah will be merciful to him on the day of judgment. Stewart revisited With better understanding, we may now revisit this notion of stewardship in the Quran. I have argued that stewardship is not a matter of entitlement, but of responsibility. That we human beings are preferred above much of creation is not a preference in terms of Allah favoring a certain creation because he just likes them better. It should be noted that when the word fadl translated as preference is used in the Quran, it is never used in a categorical way nor does it ever imply intrinsic value it is always presented as a test of gratitude and an added responsibility as well as accountability if one does not perform up to standard fulfill his responsibility he will not only be debased but punished behold surat al-isra 17 chapter 17 verses 70 and 71 yet very truly we have so honored the children of adam For we have carried them through the land and the sea, and we have provided them with all that is wholesome in life, and we have so favored them above most of what we have created with such immense favor. Yet the day comes when we shall call upon every people by their leaders. Thus whoever is given his book of deeds in his right hand, then such as these shall read their book joyfully, and never shall they be wronged in their reward even a whit. Worship is not characterized by dominion, but by care and caution. O children of Adam, do you do don your adoring, sorry, O children of Adam, don your adoring apparel, don your adoring, your adoring apparel when sitting out for every place of worship. Moreover, eat and drink freely, but do not become excessive, for indeed He does not love those who are excessive. Surah Al-Araf, chapter seven, verse thirty-one. The Prophet وسلم, lived his life within strict bounds of frugality, within strict bounds of frugality. It has been reported in a Samhari that one ought not waste water even at a flowing river. Such caution and care in interaction with the world around us ought to be a prime characteristic of a steward of the earth. For those of mankind who seem to forget we are mere stewards and not kings, or those who hold dominion. The Qur'an has several blunt reminders to man of this, one of which is the following. Have you considered the semen you emit? Do you yourselves create it, or is it we who are the creators of it? Have you considered what you tell? Do you yourselves grow its plants, or is it we who make them grow? If we sow well, we shall turn it into crumbling stubble, and you shall forever lament, saying, Indeed, we are desolated rather we have become destitute rather we have become destitute have you considered the water that you drink did you yourself bring it down from the clouds or is it we who send it down if we so well we shall at once cause it to become acrid. will you not then give thanks do you see the fire that you kindle did you yourself bring forth the tree that kindles and fuels it or is, it, or is it we who brought it forth? We alone have made it a reminder of hellfire and a provision of survival and security for those who trek in the wilderness. Surah Al-Waqa 56 verses 58 to 73. Once again, we see here the powerful rhetorical tenor of the Quran and its ability to put mankind squarely in its place. It does, it does so, and in the, proce- in the process utterly shatters any phantom notion of our privilege over the world around us. Thus we see the Quranic vision of man's stewardship on earth. It is one of acknowledgement of a respect for the magnificent creations around us. It is one of care and toil to not only preserve but let flourish. It is one of care and toil to not only persevere, not to not only preserve but let flourish the beings in our midst. It is one of understanding the likenesses and similarities between ourselves and those who at first glance seem so utterly distinct from us. It is learning, respect, and humility before them. In a word, it is taking the time out to learn the true names of the beings who inhabit the same world as us. Like I said at the outset, the angels had every right to doubt our placement as a stewards, but we ought to remember who came to our aid and what abilities he gave us to overcome our faults. We do have it in ourselves to do great deeds and be good stewards of the earth. Allah did not offer the option of will, volitional faith as a cruel trick or unfair burden. With that responsibility came ability to make this world a human, to make this world a humane place. We have it completely within our power. We have it completely within our uh, power. It is dependent only upon our actions. If only we would remember and pay heed. Yet there are among people those who would give their very souls in seeking the good pleasure of Allah. And Allah is all kind to all his servants. Surah Al-Baqarah, Chapter 2, Verse 207. Yet there are among people those who would give their very souls in seeking the good pleasure of Allah. And Allah is all kind to all his servants. Surah Al-Baqarah, Chapter 2, Verse 207. الحمد لله